Continuing our sermon series through the book of Jonah, we are in chapter 2, which we began last week, and uh, we'll be doing part 2 of uh, this prayer this week. And so let us, as we prepare to uh, hear and receive God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty, gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer in Jesus Christ. And as you promise that your word will not return to you void, but will accomplish your purposes, we ask that your word would move among us with power this day. Grant to all of us that our hearts being freed from worldly affairs may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness. To your praise and honor and glory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We'll begin at chapter 1, verse 17, and we will read the entirety of chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, last Sunday, we began examining this prayer of Jonah from the belly of the great fish. And we noted that this was a remarkable prayer in which we get a glimpse of what God was doing inside of his prophet, providing us with profound and penetrating spiritual insight. We see through this prayer the ways in which Jonah was coming to understand the Lord's work in his life, to draw him back to the Lord and to encourage him to be obedient to God's word. Last Sunday, we examined two of the five aspects of this prayer that I mentioned were significant for us. The two last week were Jonah's restoration to the presence of the Lord and his renewed recognition of God's providence in his life. And this week, I want to spend time with the final three. And these are Jonah's rebirth 
into God's grace. His rekindled sense of compassion and consecration and his revived comprehension of salvation. In examining these, my hope for us is that we would not fail to recognize the greatness of God's grace in our own lives. I hope that we would stand in wonder and amazement at the grace of God, and I hope that we would respond appropriately to it, joyfully worshiping and serving the Lord. So without further delay, let's get to it. First, this prayer represents Jonah's rebirth into God's grace. It represents Jonah's rebirth into God's grace. Now, I use this word rebirth very intentionally. You see, there's this interesting thing that we can't see very clearly in the English, but which becomes obvious in the Hebrew. In chapter 1, verse 17, a masculine noun is used for this fish which the Lord had appointed to swallow up Jonah. The same masculine noun is used again at the end of chapter 2 in verse 10. But follow me here. In chapter 2, in verse 1, the word for that same fish is a feminine noun. And this doesn't seem to be a mistake. For in verse 2, Jonah states that he called out to the Lord, out of my distress, a phrase specifically tied to childbirth. Describes the travail of the birthing process. And then later in verse 2, Jonah prays, out of the belly of Sheol I cry. And the word for belly there is really womb. What does all that mean? Well, clearly there is an intentional drawing to mind of childbirth in these first couple of verses of chapter 2. And it is Jonah who is in the womb. So it's creating an image of Jonah being reborn from the womb of this fish. But it's also clear that the belly of this fish was to be understood as a grave as well. This is why Jonah refers to Sheol. Sheol, as many of you know, is the place of death. Scripture often speaks of Sheol to refer to the grave. And later in the prayer, Jonah will refer to the bars being closed upon him forever, which is also a reference to the gates of Sheol. In other words, there is another reference to death. And this actually helps us to understand a little more about the significance of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish for three days. Why three days? Well, for starters, it is the number of days that according to Hebrew tradition, it took for someone to be really considered dead. And this is the point at which uh, the Hebrews thought the soul left the body. Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish was to mark him as truly dead. Jonah was, in essence, in the tomb for three days. Obviously, we understand these three days to point forward to Jesus' death, who also had truly died. That's what we proclaim, confess in the Apostles' Creed. But three days is also significant because the third day is a day of 
new life in Scripture. In the creation story in Genesis 1, it's on the third day that God makes the dry land appear and causes vegetation to spring forth. The image that Scripture gives us there is of life sprouting up and and rising up out of the ground from whence there was only death. And three days later, on the second third day of this new creation, animals are brought forth from the earth, as are human beings who are made in the image of God. Later in Genesis, we see the third day mentioned again in the story of Abraham and Isaac. We're told that it was on the third day that Abraham sought to carry out the test that the Lord had given to him, presenting Isaac to the Lord to be sacrificed. And we know that the Lord provided instead a ram to be sacrificed on that day. And in providing this ram, God acted to bring new life to Isaac. This is the pattern that we see in Scripture of new life sprouting up on the third day. And we are meant to put all of this together here in this Scripture passage. The the double meaning of three days and the third day. There is both death and rebirth to new life here. You see, Jonah had come to see his own wretched condition. He had come to see his spiritual bankruptcy. He had disobeyed the Lord. He had refused to answer the Lord's calling in his life and attempted to flee from the Lord. And as Jonah sank into the deep, Jonah recognized that he deserved exactly what he was receiving, which was death. As things around Jonah grew darker and darker in this pit from which there was no escape, Jonah understood that he was as good as dead. Really, truly, being in the belly of the great fish was meant to be as a tomb to him. Jonah was entombed in the fish in the depths of the ocean, dead in his sin. But Jonah understood that being swallowed up by this great fish was also the Lord's provision for him. This is how the Lord had answered his cries for help. This is how the Lord had delivered him from a watery grave. Jonah states at the beginning of the prayer that when he called out to the Lord, the Lord answered him. When he cried to the Lord from the belly of Sheol, the Lord heard his voice. Do you understand? This is all meant to reveal to us that Jonah was dead in his sins and yet the Lord was gracious to rescue him he was by his grace by God's grace resurrecting Jonah from the dead so the belly of the fish was not only representative of a tomb it was also representative of a womb from which Jonah was being reborn to newness of life in miraculous, in a very miraculous way. Even as being swallowed by this great fish was not a happy transport, as one commentator puts it, being swallowed and vomited back up served as the means of Jonah's salvation and deliverance. And Jonah clearly understood here God's graciousness to save him. It wasn't because he was worthy of God's favor, quite the opposite. 
But Jonah remembered that his God was faithful to his covenant. He had revealed himself to be a God who desired to make provision for the sin of his people. And this is why we see these references, these two references to the temple. We see this in verse 4 when Jonah states that even though he had been driven away from God's sight, as Jonah says, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. And then again in verse 7, Jonah states, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. These references to the temple were not merely because it was in the temple that God's presence resided it was also because of the reality that the temple was where sacrifices were made and what were sacrifices about they were about making atonement for sin now we understand that a lamb being slain didn't really cover over sin but these sacrifices pointed forward to the one true and eternal sacrifice that would be made which would cover over all sin and we understand that this happens in the lord jesus christ the great passover lamb who offered up his life as a ransom for many so Jonah was remembering the provision that God had made for sinners and he was appealing to it as Richard Phillips states, Jonah remembered that God had ordered sacrifices as a way of restoring sinners to himself. It was for the sake of these sacrifices that the temple existed as the blood of lambs was shed for the forgiveness of sin. And it was by the mercy granted by God through the sacrificial blood that Jonah had a hope for salvation. And we see this we see in this prayer then Jonah remembering and experiencing God's grace, which was strong enough to cover his sin, which was strong enough to resurrect him from the dead and give him new life. This was amazing grace, which he did not deserve, but God had given to him as a gift nonetheless. And as Jonah's prayer gives witness to the greatness of God's grace, how much more should we who have received the revelation of God's grace in Jesus Christ to understand just how costly the grace of God is to deliver us from our sin. How much more should we remember it and desire to experience it? How much more should we desire to be delivered out of the death of sin and brought to a newness of life? Scripture declares it is much more glorious and miraculous than being swallowed by a great fish and vomited back up. So second, this prayer represents Jonah's rekindled sense of compassion and consecration. It represents Jonah's rekindled sense of compassion and consecration. Now in Jonah's prayer, these are two things, compassion and consecration. They're, they are separate, but they are intricately linked ideas. In verse 8, Jonah prays, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah had a clear understanding that idolatry interferes with one's receiving God's grace. Jonah also knew that missing out on God's grace meant missing out on God's blessings. We, we don't get to experience 
the joy of God's presence. We, we don't get his peace if we have refused God's grace. But the question is, what does Jonah really mean by this line in his prayer? And there's two ways that we can take what Jonah, Jonah prays here. We can take it to mean that Jonah was acknowledging that the pagans who worshipped idols were forfeiting the grace of God. And in light of what Jonah will go on to do in chapters 3 and 4, seeming to continue to despise the Ninevites, then we could assume that Jonah still really doesn't get it. He doesn't think that the pagans are worthy of God's grace because of their idolatry, but that would mean that he didn't recognize the seriousness of his own idolatry, which was much subtler, but still sin nonetheless. It was an idolatry that God was delivering him from even as he prayed this prayer. In other words, this line is revealing that Jonah still has a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. So, Jonah was either failing to deal honestly with his own life and expressing his hypocrisy here, or, or quite the opposite. Jonah was recognizing the Lord's unmerited favor in his life. He could be seen arguing here from his own personal failings that one really doesn't want to miss out on God's grace. Could it be that Jonah didn't want anyone else to make the same mistake he had? He didn't want anyone else to allow their idolatry to interfere with receiving God's grace and blessings in their life. He wanted others to experience God's grace, and he was encouraging them to, to turn away from their idols. Having seen God's judgment on his own sin, on his own ungodly heart, he could be acknowledging the great need for others to receive God's grace as he had received it. If this is what is happening here, then we are seeing a major shift begin to occur in Jonah's attitude toward others. Where once he had despised the ungodly, now he... He himself understood what it meant to be far from God and in desperate need of rescue. Where once he sat in judgment over the pagans that he encountered, as Sinclair Ferguson states, now he sat beside them under God's judgment. And if this is what he was meaning by this part of his prayer, it's significant and profound. You see, when we understand our own unworthiness, our own need for salvation, when we understand the provision of God's unmerited favor in our own lives, truly, then we're able to look at others more compassionately. Why? Because when we understand that God gives us not what we deserve, judgment and death, but instead gives us what we don't deserve, righteousness and life, we see others in a whole new light. We see them as no different than we are. All of us are sinners, equally undeserving and in need of God's grace. And this was actually a lesson that Jonah needed to learn before he went to Nineveh. He needed to see that the Ninevites were not really all that different than he was. They too needed a warning about God's coming judgment if they were to freely receive the grace God was offering them through repentance and faith. 
It's the exact same lesson that Jonah was learning. And by the way, Jonah wasn't the only messenger that God would send who first had his eyes open to his own sinfulness and who had experienced God's grace in a life-transforming way. It, it also happened to Isaiah. We remember the passage from Isaiah that Pastor John preached a few weeks ago, Isaiah 6. And Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God in the temple in that passage. And after witnessing the worship of the heavenly hosts as they all adored God for his holiness, Isaiah immediately recognized his own sinfulness. But after confessing it, the angel took a coal from the altar and purified Isaiah with it, touching it to his lips. Isaiah had to see his own sin he had to see the need for his own forgiveness, and he had to see the Lord's gracious atonement for him before delivering the message that God had called him to proclaim. What about Peter? We remember that Peter had to be restored by Jesus after he denied knowing Jesus three times. How about Paul? Paul had been the persecutor of the church before he was saved by God, leading Paul to acknowledge himself to be the chief among sinners and declaring the greatness of God's grace to all who place faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ because God had given him grace. Perhaps it was exactly what Jonah needed as these others had a recognition of his own sin, a, a personal experience of God's grace in his own life, which made him recognize the need for these same things in the lives of others. If this was the case, then we shouldn't miss the, the lengths that God would go to to deal with Jonah's attitude concerning others. It wasn't just that Jonah had sinned against God. It was the nature of his sin that Jonah had despised the Ninevites. God had brought him to the depths to help him to see his own sin and the grace offered to him that he might see others in a new light. And this prayer gives us indication that the Lord was working in his heart to acknowledge that he wasn't much different than those he was being sent to after all. But this would obviously create some contradiction in Jonah's life moving forward. We, we might ask, if Jonah was really filled with compassion based on the understanding of the depths of his own need before the Lord, then, then why did he go on to act the way he did toward the Ninevites? Why did he continue to act upset about them having the opportunity to repent if he truly understood God's grace in his own life? And this might lead us to be tempted to try to resolve the contradiction in tension by going with the first option that Jonah really just didn't see the idolatry in his own life. But, but let me ask you these things. When God deals, when he begins to deal with the sin in your life, can you acknowledge it and acknowledge that God is calling you to turn from it even as it isn't completely put to death in your life? In other words, do you still wrestle with sins that are known to you? 
And doesn't this mean that there is occasionally contradiction in our prayers? For instance, don't we pray that the Lord would help us to love and forgive others, especially those we see as our enemies, even as we continue to have difficulty loving them and forgiving them? Of course we do. This is part of our ongoing sanctification. The, the important thing is that the Lord deals with these things in us. But that doesn't mean that they are all fixed in us at once. It's a process of being refined by God. It's the complexity of having faith and exercising it in a, in a fallen world. The lesson for us, though, is that if we, as the church of Jesus Christ, have truly experienced the grace of God in Jesus, then the natural outworking of that is to have a compassionate spirit toward others. This includes those we might be tempted to despise. We don't yet sit over anyone. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We are all in need of forgiveness. And it's our task as recipients of God's grace to declare God's grace to others. And this is how compassion is linked to consecration. So having this new compassion, Jonah has new encouragement to obey God's call to go and to, to be the means by which God's grace would come to others. In verse 9, Jonah declares, But I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah has received from this experience fresh encouragement in his prophetic calling. Serving the Lord isn't just about fulfilling a duty. He's not going to go about it begrudgingly, or he shouldn't. It's understanding that we owe our lives to the Lord for his goodness to us. And so serving him with a sense of deep gratitude. It's a heart filled with profound thankfulness that propels us into God's service. This is what an experience of God's grace does to us. It makes us willing and eager to serve the Lord. Indeed, Jonah's experience of God's grace had not only filled him with a spirit of compassion, but renewed within him a commitment to serve the Lord as his prophet. The church of Jesus Christ should not miss this lesson. Third and finally, this prayer represents Jonah's revived comprehension of salvation. It represents Jonah's revived comprehension of salvation. Jonah's prayer ends extolling the work of the Lord as Savior with this monumental statement in verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. Having acknowledged that he was not worthy of salvation, that he could do nothing to earn salvation or bring it about in his life, Jonah declares that from the start to the finish, salvation is from God. God is sovereign over salvation. As Tim Keller noted in his book on Jonah, salvation belongs to God alone, to no one else. If someone is saved, it is wholly God's doing. It is not a matter of God saving you partly and you saving yourself partly. No, God saves us. We do not and cannot save ourselves. This was true of Jonah, and it's true 
of each of us. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, and it is glorious. So as we study scripture, I hope that we come to the same conclusion that Jonah has come to here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we should understand what that means. Briefly, let me mention three things. First, it means that God initiates salvation. God initiates salvation. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus that we are saved having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. As Richard Phillips states, the plan of salvation originated in the counsel of God's will according to his own purpose and by his predestination. Or as Charles Spurgeon wrote, no human intellect, no created intelligence assisted God in the planning of salvation. He contrived the way even as he himself carried it out. Think about it. Only God could create a way for guilty and corrupted sinners to be found righteous and accepted into his holy presence. Only God in his infinite wisdom can justify the sinner without violating his own justice and righteousness. And only God in his power could accomplish this work of salvation. Any atoning sacrifice that we could offer would be incomplete. All of our good works are polluted by our sin. We see this in Jonah. What exactly did Jonah contribute to his salvation? Nothing but his unbelief, his rebellion, his folly, his sin. We cannot provide the remedy to our sin. But God has willed to save us according to his purposes. By condescending to earth, taking on human flesh, dwelling among us in his son, Jesus Christ. Through a virgin birth, Jesus was fully man, but without sin. Able to stand in our place, living in perfect obedience to the law, offering himself as the the perfect, unblemished sacrifice on the cross. And as one who is fully God, Jesus was able to defeat sin and death for us, being raised by God from the dead. God is the source of salvation then, and it flows from his will. He initiates it. He accomplishes it. In Jonah, it's getting swallowed by a great fish. For us, it's being baptized into Christ's death on the cross and being raised with him to new life. Next, God provides the power for salvation. Jonah's prayer acknowledges that the condition of sinful man is death. This is what scripture teaches us. Again, from Ephesians, the apostle Paul teaches us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins before we are saved in Jesus Christ. From John's gospel, we learn that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What we learn from Scripture then is that we are utterly incapable of choosing Christ. Our spirit is dead in sin. Our will is enslaved to sin. We can do no other than choose sin and death. It is impossible for us to be saved if it requires anything of us. This is what Jesus tells Peter. What is impossible with men is possible with God. 
And thanks be to God that he provides us with the power to be saved by giving us the Holy Spirit. Without God giving us his Holy Spirit, who brings about the conviction of sin, who enables us to repent, who provides us with the gift of faith, who creates in us new life, who unites us to Jesus Christ, we remain dead in our sin. Without repentance and faith, given by God as a gift, we cannot be justified in God's sight. And if we are not justified, then we cannot be reconciled to God and brought back into relationship with him which means we do not have peace with God and have no hope to live eternally in his presence. Jonah paints this picture for us. He is one who has hardened his heart to the Lord, who sought to flee from God, who refused to pray, who would not repent even when the wrathful storm of the Lord appeared, who could only offer a bitter spirit that declared to the sailors to pick him up and hurl him into the sea. But this prayer shows us a change in heart. What is the explanation for this? Jonah tells us salvation belongs to the Lord. It was all the Lord's doing. Lastly, God brings salvation to its conclusion. Isn't it interesting that Jonah never asked God to deliver him from the inside of that great fish? Rather, Jonah gives thanks to God for the deliverance God had provided him, deliverance from sin and folly. But would Jonah's salvation really have been complete if he had remained in the belly of that fish? Of course not. And likewise, as Richard Phillip points out, our salvation will not be complete until we are delivered out of this dark and evil age to arrive safely on the shores of heaven. And the wonderful news for us is that God's word declares that this isn't left up to us. Rather, our salvation is brought to full completion by God. Even as we are called to persevere in faith, we do not do this on our own power. What scripture teaches us is that our ability to persevere is a result of God's ongoing grace in our lives. Just as God spoke to the fish to deliver Jonah safely on dry land, God works in us to bring his work to completion in us. As Paul declares to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The apostle Peter adds to this, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What we find then is that God will not forsake us as his beloved children. Dearly beloved, salvation belongs to the Lord. So do we see God's saving power in our lives? Do we see the sinfulness of our sin, the need for forgiveness, the need to be delivered from the power of sin and death? Have we, have, have we tasted God's forgiveness in our own lives? And has it transformed us? Is it working even now to refine us, to shape us, to be like Jesus Christ? And have we heard God's call to go? Understanding our own need of God's grace, to go and to declare God's grace to those who are in deep darkness. I hope that we will find ourselves in this prayer of Jonah, that we can pray it with him. 
and that we will find ourselves hearing God's voice to us go and make disciples of all nations. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that salvation belongs to you. Lord, that there is nothing that we bring to salvation but our sin. That nothing in our hand we bring simply to the cross we cling. Lord, help us to understand the greatness of your grace. Lord, to submit our lives to you. May your grace lead us to worship. May your grace lead us to service. Lord, give us a heart for the lost and perishing. That we might go out and to proclaim the greatness of your grace to others. Lord, help us to do that. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. Believer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? 